Here we go. This is C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, Chapter 1, The Law of Human Nature. Everyone has heard people quarreling. Sometimes it sounds funny, and sometimes it sounds merely unpleasant. But however it sounds, I believe we can learn something very important from listening to the kinds of things they say. They say things like, how do you like it if anyone did the same to you? That's my seat. I was there first. Leave me alone. He isn't doing you any harm. Why should you shove in first? Give me a bit of your orange. I gave you a bit of mine. Come on, you promised. Does that sound like you guys? People say things like that every day. Educated people as well as uneducated and children as well as grown-ups. Now, what interests me about all these remarks is that the man who makes them is not merely saying that the other man's behavior does not happen to please him. He is appealing to some kind of standard or behavior which he expects the other man to know about. And the other man very seldom replies, To hell with your standard! Nearly always he tries to make out what that what he has been doing does not really go against the standard, or that if it does, there's really some special excuse for why he can do it. He pretends there is some special reason in this particular case why the person who took the seat first should not give it, keep it, keep it, or that things are quite different when he was given the bit of orange, or that something has turned up which lets him off keeping his promise. It looks, in fact, very much as if both parties had in mind some kind of law or rule of fair play or decent behavior or morality or whatever you like to call it, about which they really agreed. And they have. If they had not, they might, of course, fight like animals, but they could not quarrel in the human sense of the word. Quarreling means trying to show what the other man is in the wrong, and there would be no sense in trying to do that unless you and he had some sort of agreement as to what right and wrong are. Just as there would be no sense in saying that footballers had committed a foul unless they had some agreement about the rules of football. Now, this law or rule about right and wrong used to be called the law of nature. Nowadays, when we talk of the laws of nature, we usually mean things like gravitation or hereditary or the laws of chemistry. But when the older thinkers called the law of right and wrong the law of nature, they really meant the law of human nature. The idea was that, just like all bodies are governed by the law of gravitation and organisms by biological laws, so the creature called man also has his law, with the great difference that a body could not choose whether it obeyed the laws of gravitation or not, but a man could choose either to obey the law of human nature or to disobey it. We may put this in another way. Each man is at every moment subject to several sets of law, but there is only one of these which is free to disobey. As a body, he is subject to, subjected to gravitation and cannot disobey it. If you leave him unsupported in midair, he has no more choice about falling than a stone has. As an organism, he is subject to various biological laws, which he cannot disobey and more than an animal can. Are you going to read the whole book? No. That is, he cannot disobey those laws which he shares with the other things. But the laws, but the law which is peculiar to his human nature, the law he does not share with animals or vegetables or inorganic things, is the one he can disobey if he chooses. This law was called the law of nature because people thought that everyone knew it by nature and did not need to be taught it. 
They did not mean, of course, that you might not find an odd invitation here and there who did not know it, just as you find a few people who are colorblind or have no ear for a tune. But taking the race as a whole, they thought that the human idea of decent behavior was obvious to everyone, and I believe they were right. If they were not, then all the things we said about the war were nonsense. What was the sense in saying that the enemy was in the wrong unless right is a real thing? which the Nazis at bottom knew as well as we did and ought to have practiced. If they had no notion of what we meant by right, then though we might still have had to fight them, we could no more have blamed them for that than the color of their hair. I know that some people say the idea, the law of nature, or decent behavior known to all men is unsound because different civilizations in different ages have have had quite different moralities. But this is not true. There have been differences between their moralities, but these have never amounted to anything like a total difference. If anyone will take the trouble to compare the moral teachings of, say, the ancient Egyptians, Babylonians, Hindus, Chinese, Greeks, and Romans, they will really strike and will be how very like they are to each other and to our own. Some of the evidence for this I have put together in the appendix of another book called The Abolition of Man. But for our present purpose, I need only ask the reader to think what a totally different morality would mean. Think of a country where people were admired for running away in battle, where a man felt proud of double-crossing all the people who had been kindest to him. You might just as well try to imagine a country where two and two made five. Men have different, differed as regards to what people you ought to be unselfish to, whether it was only your own family or your fellow countrymen or everyone but they've always agreed that you ought not to put yourself first. Selfishness has never been admired. Men have different as to whether or not you should have one wife or four, but they've always agreed that you must not simply have any woman you like. But the most remarkable thing is this. Whenever you find a man who says he does not believe in a right or wrong, you will find the same man going back on this a moment later. He may break his promise to you, but if you try breaking one to him, he will be complaining. It's not fair. Before you can say Jack Robinson. A nation may say treaties do not matter, but then the next minute they spoil their case by saying that the particular treaty they want to break was an unfair one. But if treaties do not matter, and if there is no such thing as right and wrong, in other words, if there is no law of nature, what is the difference between a fair treaty and an unfair one? Have they not let the cat out of the bag and shown that whatever they say, they really know the law of nature just like anyone else? It seems then we are forced to believe in a real right and wrong. People may be sometimes mistaken about them, just as people sometimes get their sums wrong. But they are not a matter of mere taste and opinion any more than the multiplication table. Now, if we agree about that, I go on to my next point, which is this. None of us are really keeping the law of nature. If there are any exceptions among you, I apologize to them. They had much better read some other work, for nothing I am going to say concerns them. And now, turning to the ordinary human beings who are left, I hope you will not misunderstand that I am not going to say, I am not preaching, and heaven knows I do not pretend to be better than anyone else. I am only trying to call attention to the fact that to, the, to a fact, the fact that this year, or this month, or most likely this very day, we have failed to practice ourselves this kind of behavior we expect from other people. There may be all sorts of excuses for us. That time you were unfair to the children was when you were very tired. That slightly shady business about the money, the one you had almost forgotten, came when you were very hard up. 
and that you promised to do for old so-and-so I have never done. Well, you never would have promised if it had been known how frightfully busy you're going to be. And as for your behavior to your wife or husband or sister or brother, if I knew how irritating it could be, I would not wonder at it. And who the dickens am I anyway? I am just the same. This is to say, I do not succeed in keeping the law of nature very well. And the moment anyone tells me I am not keeping it, there starts up in my mind a string of excuses as long as your arm. The question at the moment is not whether they are good excuses. The point is that they are, not, are one more proof of how deeply, whether we like it or not, we believe in the law of nature. If we do not believe in decent behavior, why should we be so anxious to make excuses for not behaving decently? The truth is, we believe in decency so much, we feel the rule of the law pressing in on us so that we cannot bear to face the fact that we are breaking it, and consequently, we try to shift the responsibility. For you notice that this is not only for our bad behavior that we find all these explanations. It is only for our bad temper that we put down to being tired or worried or hungry. We put our good temper down to ourselves. These, then, are the two points I wanted to make. First that human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way and cannot really get rid of it. Secondly, that they do not in fact behave in that way. They know the law of nature, they break it. These two facts are the foundation of all clear thinking about ourselves and the universe we live in. End of chapter one. Okay, this is a continued reading of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Chapter 2, Some Objections. <clears throat> if they are the foundation, I had better stop to make that foundation firm before I go on. Some of the letters I had shown that a good many people find it difficult to understand just what this law of human nature or moral law or rule of decent behavior is. For example, some people wrote to me saying, isn't what you call the moral law simply a herd instinct and hasn't it been developed just like all of our other instincts? Now, I do not deny that we have a herd instinct, but that is not what I mean by the moral law. We all know what it feels like to be prompted by instinct, by mother love or sexual instinct or by the instinct for food. It means that you feel a strong want or desire to act in a certain way. And of course, we sometimes do feel just that sort of desire to help another person, and no doubt that desire is due to the herd instinct. But feeling a desire to help is quite different from feeling that you ought to help whether you want to or not. Supposing you hear a cry for help from a man in danger, you will probably feel two desires. One, a desire to give help due to your herd instinct, and the other, a desire to keep out of danger due to the instinct for self-preservation. But you will find inside you, in addition to these two impulses, a third thing which tells you that you ought to follow the impulse to help and suppress the impulse to run away. Now this thing that judges between the two instincts that decides what should be encouraged cannot itself be either of them. You might as well say the sheet of music which tells you at a given moment to play on one note on the piano and not another is itself do one of the notes on the keyboard. The moral law tells us the tune we have to play. Our instincts are merely the keys. Another way of seeing that the moral law is not simply one of our instincts is this. <clears throat> if two instincts are in conflict and there is nothing in a creature's mind except those two instincts, obviously the stronger of the two must win. But at those moments when we are most conscious of the moral law, it usually seems to be telling us to side with the weaker of the two impulses. You probably want to be safe much more than you want to help the man who is drowning. 
but the moral law tells you to help him all the same. And surely it often tells us to try to make the right impulses stronger than it naturally is. I mean, we often feel it is our duty to stimulate the herd instinct by waking up our imaginations and arousing our pity and so on and so as to get up enough steam for doing the right thing. But clearly we are not acting from instinct when we set about making an instinct stronger than it is. The thing that says to you, your herd instinct is asleep. Wake it up. Cannot itself be the herd instinct. The thing that tells you which note on the piano needs to be played louder mm. cannot itself be the note. Here's a third way of seeing it. If the moral law was one of our instincts, we ought to be able to point to some one impulse inside us, which was always what we call a good, always in agreement with the rules of the right behavior. But you cannot. There is none of our impulses which the moral law may not sometimes tell us to suppress, and none which it may not sometimes tell us to encourage. It is the mistake to think that some of our impulses, say mother love or patriotism, are good, and others like sex or the fighting instinct are bad. All we mean is that the occasions on which the fighting instinct or the sexual desire needs to be restrained are rather more frequent than those for restraining mother love or patriotism. But there are situations in which it is the duty of a married man to encourage his sexual impulse and of a soldier to encourage the fighting instinct. There are also occasions in which a mother's love for her own children or a man's love for his own country has to be suppressed or they will lead to unfairness towards other people's children or countries. Strictly speaking, there are no such thing as good and bad impulses. <clears throat> Think once again of a piano. It has not got two kinds of notes on it, the right notes and the wrong notes. Every single note is right at one time and wrong at another. The moral law is not any one instinct or any set of instincts. It is sometimes which makes them kind of tune, the tune we call goodness or right conduct, by directing the instinct. By the way, this point is of great practical consequence. The most dangerous thing you can do is to take any one impulse of your own nature and set it up as the thing you ought to follow at all costs. There is not one of them which will not make us into devils if we set it up as an absolute guide. You might think love of humanity in general was safe, but it is not. If you leave out justice, you will find yourself breaking agreements and faking evidence and trials for the sake of humanity and become in the end a cruel and treacherous man. Other people wrote to me saying, isn't what you call the moral law just a social convention, something that the, they put into us by education? I think there's a misunderstanding here. The people who ask these questions are usually taking it for granted that if we have learned a thing from parents and teachers, then that this must be merely a human invention. But of course that is not so. We all learn the multiplication, multiplication table at school. A child who gives us up alone on a desert island would not know it. But surely it does not follow that the multiplication, multiplication table is simply a human convention something human beings have made up for themselves and might have made different if they had liked. I fully agree that we learn the rules of decor and behavior from parents and teachers and friends and books as we learn everything else. But some of these things we learn are mere conventions which might have been different and learn to keep to the left of the road, but it might just as well have been the rule to keep to the right. And others of them, like mathematics, are real truth. The question is, in which class does the law of human nature belong? There are two reasons for saying it belongs in the same class as mathematics. The first is, as I said in the first chapter, that though there are differences between the moral ideas of one time of our country and those of another, the differences are not really very great. Not nearly so great as most people imagine, and you can recognize the same law running through them all. Whereas 
Mere conventions like the rule of the road or the kind of clothes people wear may differ from it to any extent. The other reason is this. When you think about these differences between the morality of one people and another, do you think that the morality of one people is ever better or worse than that of another? Have any of the changes been improvements? If not, then of course, there could never be any moral progress. Progress means no just changing, but cha not just changing, but changing for the better. If, not, if no set of moral ideas were truer or better than any other, there would be no sense in preferring civilized morality to savage morality or Christian morality to Nazi morality. In fact, of course, we all do believe that some moralities are better than others. We do believe that some of the people who try to change the moral ideas of their own age were what we would call reformers or pioneers, people who understood morality better than their neighbors did. Very well then. The moment you say that one set of moral ideas can be better than another, you are in fact measuring them both by a standard, saying that one of them conforms to that standard more than nearly than the other, but the standard that measures two things is something different from either. You are in fact comparing them both with some real morality. Admitting that there is such a thing as a real bright independent of what people think and that some people's ideas get nearer to the real right than others. We'll put it this way. If your moral ideas can be truer and those of the Nazis less true, there must be something, some real morality for them to be true about. The reason why your idea of New York can be truer or less true than mine is that New York is a real place, existing quite apart from what either of us think. If when each of us says New York and meant entirely the town I am imagining in my own head, how could one of them have a truer idea than the other? There would be no question of truth or falsehood at all. In the same way, if the rule of decent behavior means simply whatever each nation happens to approve, there would be no sense of saying that any one nation had ever been more correct in its approval than the other. No sense in saying that the word could ever grow morally better or morally worse. I conclude, then, that though the difference between people's ideas of decent behavior often make you suspect that there is no real natural law or behavior at all, yet the things we are bound to think about these differences really prove just the opposite. But one word before I end. <clears throat> I have met people who exaggerate the differences because they have no distinguishing, they have not distinguished between differences of belief about facts. For example, one man said to me, Three hundred years ago, people in England were putting witches to death. Was that what you call the rule of human nature or right conduct? But surely the reason we do not execute witches is that we do not believe that there are, there are such things. If we did, if we really thought that there were people going about who had sold themselves to the devil and receiving supernatural powers from him in return and were using those powers to kill their neighbors or drive them mad or bring bad weather, surely we would all agree that if anyone deserved the death penalty, then these filthy quislings did. There is no difference of moral principle here. The difference is simply about matter of fact. It may be a great advance in knowledge and not, not in believe. Bleh. It may be a great advance in knowledge not to believe in witches. There is no moral advance in not executing them when you do not think they are there. You would not call a man human for ceasing to see mouse traps if he didn't so, for ceasing to set mouse traps if he did so because he believed there was no mice in the house. All right, that was chapter two.